Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Mark, chapter 4. You can turn with me uh, in a Bible or on your phone or on another device, or it will also be up on the screen if you would prefer to read from there. Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35, Jesus calms the storm. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, it's the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet. Be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today is the second Sunday of Lent, uh, which again, 40 days leading up to Easter, starting with Ash Wednesday. It's typically a time uh, that is focused on our need for Jesus. And this year, with some of my uh, school internship and placement stuff I have going on, uh, right now, I got the privilege of planning uh, our theme for Lent. And I chose this question Who is this? Uh, as staff, we send out a blog post every once in a while, conveniently called What's Going On? And different staff members write at different times. And if you read the most recent one about worship, Ruthann, our worship director, wrote most of it, but I had a little blurb in there about uh, this series. And I want to communicate some of those same things this morning, going into this series. So the question, who is this, is asked of Jesus relatively frequently throughout the Gospels. It's kind of a recurring question. And it's asked by both his followers and his opposers. This morning's story, it's Jesus' disciples who ask him. And the basic idea is that Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that they had imagined. So now my question for us is, is Jesus the kind of Messiah that we're looking for? Perhaps we have our own version that we've imagined what Jesus is like, or what he should be like, or what we'd like him to be like. And then when we read about him in the Bible, we get a different version than what we've imagined. So are we willing to let The Jesus of the Bible tell us who he is, rather than imposing our own ideas, but what we think Jesus should be. 
turning to this morning's passage, I want to set the stage a little bit so that we have a clear grasp uh, of what's going on. Because just reading the words on the page doesn't always tell the full story. Especially when the setting is unfamiliar to modern Western life in Canada. So geographically speaking, this story takes place on the Sea of Galilee. It's more of a lake, really, than you might consider a sea. It's far, far smaller than the Mediterranean Sea, the Great Sea, for example, which is pretty close to it. And I've got a couple maps uh, for us to look at. I'm not sure if we can, uh, we have those ready to pull up. Um, so I've got two maps. One uh, is kind of, it's of uh, the ancient Near East. Um, if we can pull up the other map first. This one is close up of the Sea of Galilee. I have one that's a, a larger area. Uh, yeah, of the entire ancient Near East. And that's kind of where the, the whole Bible takes place is in, in that larger area. If we just have this, this one, that's fine as well. The reason I had this larger map uh, is because it, it shows the whole area and it shows a bunch of different seas around in the area and then there's just this tiny little dot on the map and that's the Sea of Galilee. It's even hard to see uh, on that picture. So I had kind of an arrow that pointed to how small it is. Um, so I, I want to give an example a bit closer to home. Speaking of the Great Lakes, like Lake Ontario is just right in our backyard here in Grimsby. On a clear day, like today, if you look across Lake Ontario, you can see Toronto from here. That distance is about 53 kilometers. Earlier this week, Eric and I were chatting, and I had given him a different distance, and he said, I don't think that's right. So I had to look it up, and I was wrong. <laughs> so that distance, if you look across to Toronto, that's 53 kilometers. The Sea of Galilee at its longest, so this kind of up and down way, is only 21 kilometers. Lake Ontario at its longest is 210 kilometers, 10 times the size. And that's not, this, this 21 kilometers isn't the direction that Jesus and his disciples are going. They only have to go 10 at the most, maybe even less. You can see on, the, on kind of the top left side there is Capernaum. That's where a lot of Jesus' closest friends and some of his disciples were from. And when Jesus says, let's go over to the other side, they're going to head to where the question mark one there is, Gergesa. In Mark chapter 5, verse 1, it says that they landed in the region of the Gerasenes. This is that place. It's a Gentile region. So that, that's where they're going, across the lake there. It's just a few kilometers. It's not a very big, uh, Sea of Galilee is not very big. And another thing to note the Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level. So it's a very low area. And the sea is surrounded by hills. So this is, it's really, really common for there to be these unexpected violent storms on the Sea of Galilee. So hot air would come over the hills and collide with the cold air on the low lake, and it would cause these unexpected violent storms. From the beginning of Mark chapter 4 through to chapter 6 verse 6, Jesus is either on or right beside the Sea of Galilee. He basically goes back and forth. 
He's on this side. He does some teaching. The people line up the hills. Jesus stands in the boat and he speaks to them. It's a natural amphitheater. They get in a boat. They go to the other side. He does the same thing. He teaches. He heals. They get in a boat. He goes back to the other side. Does the same thing. So a significant portion of Jesus' early ministry takes place right in this area. And so it's no wonder that so many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. We know for sure that four of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, but it's thought that probably a few more were as well. Maybe as many as even seven or eight of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. So let's go through a few of them, what they do, what we know about them. First, we have Matthew, the tax collector. I feel like for most of us, that's not news. We have Simon, the zealot. This is kind of like a radical political party. We have Judas Iscariot, and that word Iscariot's a bit of a mystery for scholars. Some people think it might have to do with the place that he was from. Maybe he was from Kirioth. That could be a nickname that he had. That's where he's from. It could also uh, be that he was part of some other kind of uh, radical political party, that that's where the name Iscariot came from. So he could have been a type of zealot, kind of like Simon. What we do know is that Jesus made him the treasurer of the group. He looked after their money. So those are the people who we know what they do. The next group is people that we don't know what they do. We'll go to the next slide. There's a bit of a larger group that we just don't know all that much about them. Uh, on this list <laughs> is Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, uh, Judas, Thaddeus. There's a couple double names in Jesus' disciples. Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Thaddeus, James, son of Alphaeus. I call him James 2.0. Uh, we don't know what any of these guys did, but it's likely that some of them were fishermen. It's a time after Jesus rose from the dead, he meets a bunch of them when they're fishing, and um, a few of them are in the boat fishing at, in that scene. But just because they fish one time doesn't make them fishermen. So, And then we have this final group that we know for sure were fishermen. Another double name, Simon. This is Simon Peter. Jesus gives him the nickname Peter. And Andrew. They're brothers. And then we also have James and John, who are also a set of brothers. So the four fishermen is, is two sets of brothers. And if you put yourself back in the scene of the storm, you can kind of imagine the brothers arguing with each other in the middle of the storm, right? Didn't you do this thing like I told you to? Are you crazy? I got better things to do than listen to you right now. It's significant that so many of them were fishermen because it means that they were expert sailors. That's what it implies. The boat wasn't full of a bunch of amateurs. And when this storm surges, these experienced sailors are scared out of their wits. So it's clear the situation is serious. They're not overreacting. They know what's going on. When we think of a day at the lake, we might think of sun tanning, a refreshing swim, a nice cold beer at the beach, though not in a glass bottle. 
a good book in a lawn chair, some frisbee or spike ball. Okay, that's just the list of things that I like, but you all have your own list, I'm sure. And maybe if you remember this past summer when I was preaching on Jonah, then I was talking about this concept of chaotic water, cosmic chaotic water. So for people who lived in the ancient Near East, water means chaos. Sure, there's, there's fish to be caught, so there's food to provide for your family, there's a living to be made, but you have to be a desperate fool to think that you can master the sea. Water is one of the things that they fear the most culturally. Water represents chaos and danger, while the land represents safety, order. And in most ancient Near East creation stories, the land is created from the water. And as Pastor Eric was talking about a bit earlier, this actually shows up in the creation story we see in Genesis as well. Genesis 1 verse 2 says the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So, in theory, before any creation has really happened, water is already there. And this wording is chosen on purpose. Because it shows how God brings order out of chaos. God has power over the water. This is really significant. If God has power over water, it means that God has power over chaos. Which we see in this morning's passage. Although the disciples didn't feel like Jesus had power over the stormy water. Yes, they turned to Jesus, but the disciples didn't pray some pious prayer, Lord, save us. We can go to the next slide. They woke Jesus up and questioned him. Don't you care if we drown? What do you think you're doing sleeping back here? This storm is too much for us to handle without you. Why are you letting this happen? And I wonder whose idea it was to wake Jesus up. Who was the spokesperson? Who had the guts to wake Jesus up? I wonder. The disciples think that because Jesus is sleeping, it means he doesn't care about them. They think they know who Jesus is. And maybe more than that, they think they know what Jesus should be doing. They see Jesus not doing what they want. Not being who they think he should be. Not helping them in the way that they want to be helped. In the middle of the chaos of the storm, Jesus is sleeping. 
And almost all, tra- all uh, English translations say that Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. And this word cushion is, is an important one. It's, it's maybe a confusing one when you first read it. It, it struck me as I was studying the original Greek word there is proskephalion. Everyone repeat after me, say proskephalion. The word means something to rest your head on. It's a bit vague. And it's a, especially an interesting case because this is the only time in the Bible that this word shows up. So we don't have any other passages in the Bible that we can cross-reference it to to see what it means. So we have to do some cultural deduction. I think it's worth stating there is no way Jesus is laying down on some soft, fluffy, feathery pillow that he just happened to find in this boat. So what could he have used? It's common for boats to have something heavy, like a sandbag at the bottom of the boat to help keep it stable. This is called a ballast. If something heavy is at the bottom, then the boat is less likely to flip over in turbulent water. It'll stay upright. A ballast will keep it stable. This practice is still used today. So more commonly with a tank of water under the floor. This is why you see these really big boats dumping water out the sides when they're docking. Because they're keeping stable with water. So Jesus was resting his head not on some comfy soft pillow. But on a sandbag used to keep the boat stable. Maybe you're jumping ahead with me with the imagery here that Jesus is not just lying asleep on the ballast, but Jesus is the ballast. Jesus is the thing that provides stability. The simple presence of Jesus is enough to bring stability in the chaos of the storm. Verse 39 tells us that Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. Wow. Have you ever been in a rainstorm that's so loud you have to shout over it? I think we can assume that this storm was loud. With the wind and the waves and the rain and the people shouting. And now imagine all of that coming to a complete stop. And the powerful silence that ensues. Jesus has brought a complete calm. Now the roles have reversed, and Jesus has a question for his disciples. Why are you so afraid? You still have no faith? And lots of scholars have described this as Jesus going from rebuking his disciples, or sorry, from rebuking the wind to rebuking 
his disciples. But if you compare the two, Mark is very clear, Jesus rebukes the wind. But when it comes to the disciples, he doesn't use the word rebuke. Jesus simply speaks to them. I'm going to turn to some Greek again here. He said to his disciples, Upo eket pistis? Which more literally means, do you not yet have faith? Jesus does pose a challenging question. But I think he's acknowledging that someday they will have the faith to believe in him, even if they don't right now. Jesus asked this question because he pities them. He knows that their lack of faith hurts themselves much more than their lack of faith hurts him. Like, you didn't have to be afraid. I was here the whole time. Why are you afraid? Do you not yet have faith? Jesus transforms the great storm into a great calm, which produces in the disciples a great fear. Jesus calming the storm doesn't quiet their fear, it intensifies it. They're more afraid than ever. And at first, their fear exists because no one can control what's happening outside of the boat. And now their fear turns to the God-man who's in complete baffling control, who's with them in the boat. That's why they ask, who is this? The disciples underestimated Jesus. He didn't know enough about him yet. All of Jesus' shoreside teachings and parables, it didn't prepare them for this experience of his divine, awesome power. And this isn't Jesus' first miracle, but it is the kind of miracle that can't be explained in any other way. Like when it comes to healings or exorcisms, a skeptic may try to offer some kind of scientific or psychological explanation outside of Jesus. But with this, there's just no avoiding it. Jesus does what's blatantly impossible. It's a miracle. And one scholar defines miracles as an event that strengthens faith. I'd have to agree. This is the purpose of every one of Jesus' miracles. Jesus calming the storm isn't just a display of power, but it reveals part of who Jesus is. It reveals the kind of stability that he can bring. Powerful stability in the middle of chaotic, deadly storms. The storm that arose was no accident. 
The disciples are surprised, but Jesus is not surprised. He knew all along this is exactly what they needed. It was necessary for the disciples to go through the storm in order that their faith can continue to grow. They must be presented with the storm so that they have the opportunity to turn to Jesus. This stable Jesus. And they did the right thing, turning to Jesus. But the way that they turned to Jesus shows a lack of faith. And yet all that means is that they still needed to grow, which we all do. Had they trusted Jesus, it wouldn't have shown that they were perfect or something. They still needed him. No matter their response to the storm, they still need Jesus. It's easy to trust Jesus when we're not in the middle of a storm. But storms will inevitably come. And whether you're terrified and you fall on your knees and all you can say is, Wake up, Jesus. Don't you care about me? Or you're able to confidently say, Jesus, I trust you. Bring stability into my life. Either way, turning to him is the right call. We still need him. And for our own good, we must not underestimate the power of Jesus. His power isn't just over our future, eternal condition someday when we die. It is over that. But Jesus also has the power to bring stability right now. When we face our storms, challenges, pressures, even danger. That's when our trust in Jesus is truly put to the test. Do we really trust that Christ has the power to provide stability in the midst of our chaos? Storms rage. Layoffs come. Increasing mortgage rates. Fatal diagnoses, strained marriages and family relationships, environmental concerns, societal pressures, isolation and mental health crises, newborn babies, a blessing, of course, but they bring their stresses. The stresses of everyday life furiously rage on. But Jesus rebukes the chaos in our lives. It has no power to shake us from the eternal hope that we have in Christ. I warn you, there is no such thing as a stormless sea. 
the point of this story isn't that Jesus is going to immediately solve all of our problems. Jesus wants us to trust that he will provide stability even in the middle of a storm. Jesus didn't come to heal the sick. Jesus didn't come to save his disciples from drowning. Jesus didn't come to pull you out of whatever storm you have going on in your life. Jesus came to go through them with us, to provide us stability in the middle of our storm. The life of someone who loves Jesus isn't any different than someone who doesn't, not on the outside. So what do Christians have that no one else has? Faith and hope. Hebrews 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. Although we can't see Jesus, although it might appear like he doesn't care, there is an assurance, a guarantee in the person that we place our hope in. Christ is our stability. Christ is our hope. Hope that despite the storms of life, we're going to be okay. Christ, our stability, will see us through to the end. When life is storming around you, turn to Christ. Cry out to him. He knows you need him. And may the powerful name of Jesus Christ bring stability as we traverse through life's storms together. Amen. Let's have a few moments of silent reflection and then I'll lead us in a prayer of application. Jesus, we thank you for being our stability in the midst of our chaos. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would continue to stir up faith in us, even in the middle of life's storms. Help us to trust in you, O oh God. And we also pray that you would use the faith and trust that you stir up in us 
to spread to the other people around us as we go through storms together. In Jesus' name, amen.